0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of the Center for the Advanced Study of India, or CASI, at the University of Pennsylvania. My name is Gautam Nair, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow with CASI. I'm delighted and honored to welcome today Chinmay Tumbe, who is an assistant professor in economics group at IIMM, to the podcast. He is the author of the book, India Moving, A History of Migration, as well as a number of papers concerning urbanization, labor, business history, and other topics. Chinmay is currently doing research on the consequences of the 1918 influenza epidemic in India, and this will be the topic of our discussion today. Chinmay, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's begin with uh, the 1918 epidemic, which seems to um, epitomize Stalin's quote that a single death is a tragedy, but a million deaths uh, are is a statistic. So. Tell us about what the impact of the influenza epidemic was uh, in India.
1: Yeah, I'll start with you know just the scale of the phenomenon and the remarkable uh, aspect that it, this has been India's greatest demographic disaster ever recorded, much more even than the Bengal famine of 1770. Uh, and it has also been the greatest economic collapse of minus 10% GDP growth and inflation of 30%. So on both economic and demographic counts, it has been Quite disastrous, and still remarkably unknown. When you think of in 1918, we think of you know, we think of um, uh, we think of Amritsar 1919, or we think of end of World War. So it's it's an interesting year in Indian history, which should be known for influenza, in my view, more than any other factor, and is not. And so the starting point is, of course, how many people died, and uh, the number then reported was about six million people registered deaths. This got revised up by the census of 1921 by the authorities at that time from the census claim that about 12 to 13 million and then in 1951 Kingsley Davis wrote the famous population of India and Pakistan and he put the number to 20 million using two methods an excess mortality method based on registered deaths, and then correcting it for under registration and an inter growth method saying what was it if the province was or if India was growing at a certain population from 1911 how much should it have been at 1921 and the shortfall, the major part, part of that shortfall being influenza mortality. Now that 20 million figure was pretty much the figure for a long time until the last 10 years when Siddharth Chandra and others and uh, Kenneth Hill, in two separate studies, revised down that figure to about 10 to 15 million. But not, both the studies were in British India, and so it was not on all of the Indian subcontinent. And in my recent work, I have got a larger sample uh, using some newer data sets and I argue that the actual shortfall is actually about a 30 million, but an important part of that that year was that a lot of it was also famine, uh, and so it's difficult to completely disengage influenza and famine. And so I am placing the figure now upwards or around 20 million. So it goes back to that Kingsley Davis estimate, uh, and not all the, the the what we know for sure is 7 million excess million uh, excess mortality, which was reported first. And so, this scaling up from 7 to 20 comes up because of under registration and because the princely states were not covered by those statistics. And so, that, so, this is basically a number of however you look at it, it's a large number. To give you some context, the Great Famine of 1876 78 was about 5 million. Uh, to give some context, the entire World War I battle casualties was about 10 million. And so, we are saying more people died in India, in India. In influenza uh, than all the people who died in World War I. So these are large numbers, uh, however you look at it.
0: Great. So the first no. contribution of your research is just to arrive at a better estimate of the number of deaths um, who, that occurred as a result of the influenza pandemic. Now, a lot of things happened in 1918. You mentioned the famine. What was the sort of backdrop to the influenza epidemic?
1: 1918. 1918-
0: also recorded
1: India's third worst recorded drought in history, the others being in the 1870s and 1899. Uh, and so when you look at rainfall data, it's, there's no doubt that 1918 was remarkable in terms of just an acute shortage of water. Uh, but it also came along the back of a year with, which registered India's highest amount of rainfall. So 1917 was a year in Indian history so far of the year of the highest rainfall which led to certain malarial epidemics and so on. And then 1918, you had a year of acute uh, water shortage. So that's the climatic sort of background. Uh, the e- economic background is for business and industry, the war, the war first of all, was fantastic. They made a lot of profits. And so Indian business really started booming. And the Industrial Commission of 1914, for the first time, gave protection to Indian industries. So this really started off Indian industry in a major way. Uh, and the sort of wider context, of course, World War I, in that uh, there were tremendous supply disruptions throughout the world. And a lot of the railways in India was being used for transporting soldiers, for transporting goods for the war. And one of the things I'm finding is that a lot of that transport network diversion seems to have constrained the supply of food grains, which is very important for food security in India. Because by then a lot of people were purchasing food grains from the market rather than sort of uh, making it. Either ways they were hit. A drought meant that they had little output on their own lands and extremely high rice price inflation in particular. The highest inflation of rice recorded between 1940 and going back to 1860s uh, was in 1980 19 So this was a remarkable year on the climatic front, on the global front in terms of war, uh, on the economic front, and then the previous year itself had had certain plague outbreaks and malarial outbreaks. Uh, and so as the Sanitary Commissioner of that time said, and then came influenza, uh, which I think really remar- you know, uh, points out to, uh, the fact that one was going into the crisis with a
0: lot of problems. And this may have explained in part why India was among the worst hit countries, if not the worst hit countries um, in this epidemic, correct? Absolutely. It's ma- the worst hit major country. The only co- country, so to
1: speak, is Western Samoa, which is you know, a small island. But apart from that, the countries which are hit were, you know, Iran, Indonesia, Philippines, most of them in Asia. I mean, US saw about half a million deaths, Europe was affected, Africa was affected, All, all the, the whole world was affected. But it is really Asia where it really hit hard and it really hit uh, you know, India the hardest. Uh, and there's no doubt in my mind that it was a unique climatic considerations of that year, which sort of aggravated this situation uh, to a very large extent.
0: And this was also sort of at the end of the first great globalization that we know, correct? Now, where did the epidemic start? How did it start in India and how did it spread?
1: The remarkable thing about the 1918 influenza virus is, is virus rate was very high. Mm. Just to give you an example, uh, it the second wave, that is, the first wave was you know between roughly June and August. Second wave started in September. Virtually the whole world within a two or three months. You know, had it to some extent. Uh, in India, we say the seeding really happened in Bombay, both in June as well as in September. The most logical explanation seems to be of returning troops from World War I because uh, it was very rife in Europe uh, going into September. And so these troops came back and then they sort of went around India and they sort of spread the disease. But not just the, the fact that it reached remote tribal heartlands of India uh, tells you this exceptional virus. There's no doubt there's a paper by Chandra uh, and others which shows that the railways matter, even the road networks matter. So it started from Mumbai or Bombay then, and went out but the mortality extent was very very high in west, central and North India, very low in eastern India, barely touched Assam uh, and very low in the extreme south. So east and south were spared uh, whereas central, west and north were the highest. In a very famous paper, 1986, uh, Ian Mill had shown that the mortality rates vary, but it's quite likely that a lot more people were infected everywhere. And he you know, he, he looked at uh, data in the jails, uh, and he showed that uh, basically people who were admitted to hospitals, that rate was fairly common across India. But the guys who actually died, that rate was much higher in Central, West, and North India. And so he had this famous temperature argument that is it was colder because a lot of these guys from influenza died from pneumonia. That is, it broke down the uh, sort of, uh, system, uh, respiratory system, and the, uh, they eventually died of pneumonia. Uh, and so the cold climate of November, because it's really peaked in November, uh, meant that the north, central and west was more. Now, other work is showing you know, more variables, but I'm arguing that actually these districts in the north, in the central in the west, they were also the most hit by rice price inflation or more broadly food grain inflation. The south and the east did not see that. So in the competing variables list, I would assert food grain inflation as the fundamental factor which kept a lot of people undernourished
0: on which influenza then interacted. And one of the fascinating facts of your research is that it has some contemporary resonances, which we'll get to perhaps later, which is that the southern states which have performed better today in terms of checking the current COVID epidemic seem to have perhaps done even better, even in, in 1918. Um, now, tell, tell me about the economic impact. So, of course, there's a huge number of debts, which interestingly actually concentrated among the young. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, working age, 20 to 40, especially 20 to 30, yeah.
0: Yeah, so what was the economic impact? So you mentioned that this took place in the backdrop of a famine and increasing price price inflation and perhaps the collapse of international demand as a consequence of the end of the First World War. Um, but this also had its own independent impact on India's economy. Yeah, very simply put, people were just so sick. I mean, we're talking of estimates of somewhere between
1: 40 to 60% of the overall population of India which are infected, which means you show symptoms, which means you know, some fever, some cold. So most people stop going to work. So this is your classic supplier-side shock, where people stop going to work. So as a factor of production, there's suddenly no labor input. Uh, and that's exactly what you saw. It was not demand contraction, it was supply side contraction. And you saw inflation up to about 30% and GDP followed by 10%. Industry actually held up in terms of volumes, but throughout this time, major sort of uh, wage hikes had to be given because of labor shortage. But it was really agriculture which pulled down the economy. And agriculture simply collapsed because there was simply no people to work the farms uh, and people were not planting. And so the amount of fallow land, for example, increased tremendously. And so, you know, the actual cropped area fell by, if I'm not mistaken, something like 20 to 30%. That's a huge shortage in terms of output. And that's why the food that came to the market uh, on a deficient monsoon basically was very less. That started this, you know, uh, uh, so it was mainly the economic hit was on agriculture. But this is also a time where something like three-fourths of the population was living on agriculture. Uh, and so it is an agrarian economy which got hit on agriculture. And so that is why the economic shock was very concentrated. The next year, though, it bounced back. Uh, and so the minus 10% became actually 10% growth. Uh, uh, the next year. These are figures from Cirrus of uh, and And uh, so there was a bounce back. Uh, but it took a, a long time, basically, to get back to where it was uh, in 1980.
0: OK, so basically, there was a, there was a single year shock of, or decline in output of about 10%, and then it recovered the following year, and then to some extent. Uh, Quite rapidly, uh, but then a longer term catch up to its original level took a little while longer. Now, what was the government and private response to the influenza epidemic?
1: Yeah, so the government uh, response was virtually negligible. In the sense, there were some guidelines as to what to be done. The operative word throughout the literature of that time was ventilation. They said, keep your windows open. This is, again, this airborne theory of you know, uh, disease transmission. Uh, they did specify schools, all major places, schools uh, were shut down, uh, festivals were shut down. So all the stuff that we're seeing now, it's we, not called a lockdown because economic activities continue. But in terms of places of high density, this had a huge sort of uh, 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 history in terms of cholera plague, which was already sort of raging at that time. And so there was certain standard operating procedure which they kind of uh, followed but the medical establishment itself was short-changed because a lot of the key people in the medical establishment had themselves were serving or they, they were themselves serving in the war so they were outside india actually at the time of, of the pandemic and this was noted by the sanitary commissioner uh, of that time uh, in terms of vaccination which was a classic sort of uh, antidote for plague and so on uh, they thought you know they first identified it as the same strain of virus as the one which came in 1889 to 1891. And that was called the Pfeiffer's bacillus. So they thought it was actually bacteria. It was not, it was virus. What's really remarkable of this virus was that it is lethal. And people actually never figured out really what it was until the end of the 20th century. So there's really no way anybody in 1918, all you could do, the literature today says that people who survived this, how could you survive this? With basically some good nourishment and nursing throughout the people. And that is why one cross-country study shows that richer countries basically had much lower mortality rates than poorer. So better health, better health capacity definitely matters. Uh, and I think there's some evidence, suggestive evidence within India as well, that South India, which had a much better health system than uh, other parts of India, did potentially escape uh, some of this uh, because of that. But this is again very tentative.
0: Okay, great. And what was the long-term? Wait, before we continue, actually. What was the private response? You mentioned in in yeah. our discussion that there was a considerable upsurge of private charity um, and private works towards yeah. COVID. massive.
1: Whether you see Hyderabad, whether you see Mysore, the princely states, whether you see the British rule places like Bombay Presidency, Madras, there was a complete outpouring because this affected everyone, right? And so the complete outpouring of people, paradoxically, on the streets, in the sense. Ideally, in, in our world of social distancing, nobody should be on the streets, but, you know, this is a time when people thought we should do something and the government cannot do anything or is not visible and so we have to come on the streets and serve ourselves. There's tons of tons of organization which I have found in the literature, you know, uh, uh, which, which, which serve people across India, uh, to the point where the Sanity Commissioner sarcastically mentioned that, you know, uh, at no point of time in history have, have Indians really helped each other uh, than during influenza. Uh, and so the, even the public, the colonial officials had to sort of admit, in a way, that things could have been much worse if you know if these guys had not stepped in. And their their line was, we are doing the best we can given the constraints. Uh, but there's really you know this is something beyond us. And that's what clearly they said by February that you know they kind of put up their hands and said we really don't know what's happening. Uh, luckily, it just so happened that this virus peaked in November and then sort of you know just disappeared. So. This is a lot of bad luck, and then a lot of good luck. In the sense, you know, if it had stayed on for like you know a, a few more months, this could have been like the Black Death, you know, which, which wiped out you know, something like a third of the European population or something. So it could have been as lethal. So in a way, also got lucky. A, a lot of it, I think, was just on chance uh, uh, about this particular year.
0: Did the princely states do a better job than the directly ruled provinces under British rule?
1: And it must be. Different from state to state, but my sense is on aggregate, princely states did worse. The impact was much uh, more worse. The only way we can really know is by looking at census data. Uh, one can argue that census coverage was poorer in 1921 and so on. I don't think it could be that much. But when you look at the literature, when you look at the census report descriptions themselves, they clearly tell you that you know Rajasthan and uh, these places like Hyderabad and so on, saw mass mortality. I mean, we're talking of more than 10% of the population being wiped out. Uh, so, so clearly, some of the major princely states of India, the two big ones, that, that is Rajasthan and Rajputana, it was called, and Hyderabad State, which is this huge part uh, in, in the south, were massively hit. But places like Travancore, which are again in the deep south, uh, were you know, completely unaffected in relative terms. Uh, so, so some princely states, which were anyways doing great on, you know, uh, on health, uh, escaped influenza uh, mortality in, in relative terms. Whereas some did worse, but on aggregate, it is my sense that princely states suffered more. Now, could it be because of you know worse terms of trade? I mean, they could not get food grains on time. If this is a food grains argument, uh, that some I think is, is an argument waiting to be you know, explored in
0: further detail.
1: But it is also the case that the Rajas- because Rajasthan and in Central India, that rainfall score that we talk about, you know, was in many of those districts the worst ever. So, I mentioned 1918 as the third worst drought in Indian recorded history, but there are some parts of India where it was the worst recorded drought. So, there's a difference between the all India figure and the district wide figure. And so, 1918 was one of the worst years for many parts of central and western India.
0: What was the long term impact of the influenza epidemic to the extent that we knew anything about it?
1: Some interesting. I mean, all can one can I think this is a great sort of uh, scope for research. I'm sure a lot of economists are going to jump on this. There's some work done by you know, Donaldson and Keniston on the immediate fertility impacts and so on. The immediate impact, you know, this fertility was clamped down tremendously for a few years and then it started increasing also. Uh, my sense is that it fundamentally changed capital-labor relations uh, in the in the next decade. So it depends on how long-term you want to see, but this is important because 1920s, you remember, also saw the emergence of trade union politics in a big. Uh, and my sense is that this this is one of the catalysts for that. Um, just like the plague in 1896 also had a temporary effect, the influenza had an effect. I think the more interesting story is going to emerge in agriculture. And so a lot of my current research is on that. That is, how does it really change the labor issue in agriculture? Uh, and I do believe this was such a huge labor shock that it must have changed you know, uh, uh, some things dramatically in tenure relationships in, in agriculture. That is also, I think, uh, a great research topic for especially doctoral students to to consider, you know, exactly the question that you asked, what are the long term consequences of influenza, or even the consequences of the 1920s. I think there are many several PhD pieces waiting to be written on this.
0: And so why was this event forgotten? Why, why, why are already dozens of doctoral dissertations not written on this? (laughs)
1: And why have they been written on Amritsar nineteen nineteen? I think uh, th- th- let me you know, just compare Amritsar 1990, the Jallianwala uh, massacre and this, there the enemy was clearly identified. You know, there it was the, against the British or the World War I where you had a clear, when you have a, I think memory is very strong, when you have a clear loser and a clear winner. Right? This was pretty much almost like an act of God, at least at the scene at that time. So we are placing this in the same class of events as say a famine. Or a cyclone, or some sort of a natural disaster, uh, but it's interesting then because even natural disasters are remembered, right? uh, But this seems to have completely been wiped out. I, I suspect that one of the reasons is because it happened so quickly, and it never happened again, right? It just got sort of it. it, it was more susceptible to erasure from memory, in contrast to plague. You know, plague. They were. Thousands of documents which came out on the plague because it persisted for more than 20 years in India. Once it came in 1896, it hit India in some part or the other every year after that. So you had a plague commissioner. You had these like a whole task force on you know plague and so on. The only official document on influenza is called something called as a preliminary report on the influenza pandemic, and nothing after that. And you know Norman White, who authored that report, went on to become a leading health official for the League of Nations. And you know that particular unit that uh, he was heading uh, was the sort of uh, predecessor of the World Health Organization. So it's interesting that you know he his greatest challenge in life was in India, uh, and then he moved on to you know much larger things at a, at a uh, global scale. Uh, so, but but he remembered you know in in, in his farewell speech in the 1950s, he clearly meant he devotes a large part of the speech to the influenza in India because it clearly shook him. It was a momental. I mean, he was the leading health officer of the time. And on his watch, he claimed six million deaths, you know, we are seeing now 20 million, but, but that's a, it's a huge nightmare to read The memory was also alive for a few generations, you know? Uh, and so, uh, as you know, I'm showing, there were articles, for example, in 1958, when the next influenza scare came and Hong Kong was devastated uh, by this particular uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, and there was this particular letter to the editor in the newspaper, which said, we should take immediate precautions because remember, 1918, but that generation eventually died out uh, and because we don't have a single book on the influenza in india i mean you know can you imagine not having a book on uh, a holocaust or you know the, or the bengal famine has many books or you know uh, the 1876 70 famine has many books not a single book on the influenza so so it is uh, it is of course something uh, waiting for many m- much more research uh, to happen i think there are less than 10 research papers on this particular topic uh, uh, the, and the huge literature, the, scholarly, the, the scholarship on influenza, uh, so let, let me rephrase that, the scholarship on the medical history of India, which is you know, where people would start seeing epidemics and so on, somehow has stopped at 1914. Right? And uh, so they've covered all the other stuff. You know, they've covered cholera. There are books on cholera in India. There are many books on plague in India. Uh, but this 1918 is like this blind spot. Uh, so so it's, it's remarkable how it slipped
0: through the cracks. But yet it has many contemporary resonances and lessons, perhaps. What might some of these be? I think the most obvious one is whether to lock down or not. That's the most important public policy question which
1: governments across the world have faced over, over the last uh, five months. Uh, and, you know, I mean, now there are thousands of views on this, everyone has their own opinion. Uh, but if you looked at the influenza pandemic, it's very clear that you know uh, if you had a very strict lockdown like what india did probably much of that mortality could have been so there is an argument for a lockdown in that sense uh, but we also know from our own pandemic history in india uh, that what epidemics do is people start running away from cities this is this is the, the most stylized fact of pandemics in indian history right which means that if you announce a lockdown you better have a Policy or a plan to support these guys in the cities because their intention is to return. And that actually links to you know, the migration question. That is the, the very precarious nature of migration in India to cities, the circular nature of migration in India to cities. So this argument that, you know, let us lock up our cities so that we don't spread the pandemic to rural areas. On the one hand, it is laudable because you're trying to you know, uh, sit, uh, contain the virus in a particular place. But at the same time, you have to realize that you have to have a plan to support these migrant workers. So I think India did make a big mistake when it announced a strict lockdown without having any plan for the migrant right? workers. And in the event, most people at that point, including me, were saying that, you know, we should give a one week's notice for them to go back. Because at that time, the virus rates were not noticeably high. We knew how the virus was coming from outside. And so there was a time period. Uh, in the event, after two months, the Indian government has actually now told them to go back At a time when infection rates are much higher, and at a time when we need the economic recovery, the migrants are going back. So as a public policy decision, I think what the influenza tells us is, yes, transport networks will take the disease. uh, And so you have to take a call on when you want to do the lockdown. But the other lessons from pandemic history is the migration question. That is, you better take migrants into account in your policy or design. And I think that was completely missed out. It was not there in the speeches. And, you know, uh, it, it, there was really nothing in there for the migrant workers of India in, in 2020. And so not surprisingly, we have got two crises in India. We've got the COVID crisis, and then we have the migration crisis, uh, which I think, you know, some, some learning from past pandemics could have alleviated.
0: Chinmay, Trume, thank you so much for a terrific and insightful presentation and podcast, and we look forward to reading the article and maybe book Uh, in the months uh, to come.
1: Thank you.